Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Whenever candidate Donald Trump mentioned our cities, or African Americans for that matter, the image he painted was of crime-ridden inner cities. Of course, that picture is oversimplified, and the pervasiveness of belief in it has exacerbated decades-long neglect of our urban areas. People have that image. Maybe even worse than simple neglect, perhaps abuse of our cities is a more accurate term. Our cities are always the first to be blamed for society's ills and the last to be helped. Our guest today offers a roadmap for change. His new book is called Saving Our Cities, a progressive plan to transform urban America. I'm pleased to have with us William Goldsmith. Thanks for being with us, Bill. Uh, It's my pleasure. William Goldsmith is Professor Emeritus of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Prior to Saving Our Cities, he is co-author of Separate Societies, Poverty and Inequality in U.S. Cities. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I have this sense that American cities, as places to live and work, have been spiraling downward since the end of the Second World War. I may be wrong. And that the only time there was even any attempt to stop this unfortunate trajectory was in the 1960s with liberal programs like VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, actually in which my oldest brother worked in Buffalo, New York in 1967. How well did programs like VISTA work? What were their goals? Did it come from the top down? And Tell us about things like VISTA and how effective they may or may not have been. Those rescue programs that came in with the Kennedy and then the Johnson administration were part of a trajectory that had actually started a little bit earlier, which provided, in a lot of ways, a, a lot of support. Uh, for what we tend to call central cities, uh, the, the, the cities whose names go with the metropolitan area. Buffalo is certainly one of them. Those were pretty much top-down programs. They represented sort of the pinnacle of huge growth in federal expenditures. It had really begun uh, with a new deal then expanded um, through, well, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, uh, then, of course, um, Kennedy, Johnson, but it continued even after that uh, through Nixon, at least really? part of his uh, term, uh, through Ford, uh, through Carter, was a period in which the federal government spent a great deal of money 
in various ways on urban aid. Now, some of it was help to individuals. Some of it was programmatic, like VISTA. Yeah. Some of it offered scholarships uh, for kids to go to school. It offered support for school systems. Uh, it was a lot of money spent for highways and housing. Oh. Uh, a lot more was spent in the suburbs, it's true. Yeah. Until maybe something like 40 years ago. I mean, the, the, the date is 1980. Everyone remembers when Ronald Reagan uh-huh. becomes president or is elected to president. Um, there was a lot of help for cities then. Uh, yeah, things did begin to get tough with suburbanization after the Second World War, but uh, cities uh, held their own. People, you know, could graduate from high school, get a good factory job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there were there were rising incomes for practically everyone: uh, white Americans, uh, black Americans, uh, immigrants. So it was a it was a pretty good period for cities. Yeah, and and certainly after the Second World War, cities like Detroit, which I think most people think of when they think of cities in in distress, they were doing pretty well. I mean, they they worked at the uh, three big car manufacturers, and you know, I guess they lived in the city and then and then worked in uh, various uh, plants like that. I, I wonder, programs like Vista didn't. I guess the, the the jobs weren't really leaving at the time when, when things like that uh, were in existence, when rescue programs like that uh, were, were happening. That's right. And, and the, the, big, the big, the really big turnaround occurs um, in the mid or late 1970s and then the 1980s when, in fact, uh, jobs do begin uh, to go overseas. But then there's this boom and bust uh, that goes on for a long, long time. What, what, what I'm arguing in the book is that since about then, sometime in the late 1970s, 1980s, um, as you said in your introduction, um, cities have been uh, pretty badly treated from from the outside. Uh, I'm trying to argue that while city planners, city governments, reformers um, have lots and lots of very good ideas for ways of improving cities. Um, they have tended to neglect uh, the pressures that come from outside cities that make things uh, really hard on those cities. It was a mirror of, uh, this is not a, a, a new story, but I think it's a resurgent story. In, in 1901 to 1909, the progressive area, there was a mayor of Cleveland named Tom Johnson. And he said something like this. He said, you know, it would be so much better. We, we don't mind um, fishing bodies out of the river, helping people so they don't drown as they're passing by. But it would be so much better if they stopped throwing them in upstream. You know, it would be it'd make our lives easier, and it would make everybody's lives easier if they stopped doing that. So what I'm, what I think we have that kind of a situation now where there are, um, I identify four particular ways in which outsiders... Sort of beat up on cities, and and if they would stop beating up on cities, cities would get better. And if cities got better, whole metropolitan areas would get better. And now we're talking about the vast bulk of the U.S. population. Uh, something like uh, eighty, little over eighty percent of the population lives in metropolitan areas wow. that have more than a quarter million population. That's a lot of people. That is. That's almost the whole country. We've heard a lot lately about the rural vote. Yeah. Uh, I'm worried about the urban vote, meaning the metropolitan vote, um, which isn't just big cities. But those metropolises do a lot better 
when their central cities are doing better, and as the metropolises do better, so does the whole nation. So I think it's something to which we ought to turn our attention, and I think it's something that, that where there's a lot of political pressure to turn our attention. Well, I, I wanted to focus a little bit more on, on really what you meant about the, the upstream the pressures that are happening on the cities. Tell us, be a little more specific, if you could, about what pressures there are in the cities and what, what is coming from upstream. Sure. Um, in, in, this, in this book, um, Saving Our Cities, I identify four particular upstream pressures in cities. One is austerity. The second is schools. The third is food. And the fourth is uh, drugs. Now, each of those has a different source, and they operate in a different way. Uh, austerity comes because uh, the Congress has found that it could cut city budgets um, with little damage to the Congress, a lot of damage to the cities, uh, for about the last 40 years. The schools are in trouble mainly because of the incredible inequality between the resources available for city schools big city, central city schools, and uh, better-off suburbs. Uh, food is a problem that, again, I say comes off from, uh, from the outside because there's a, a set of giant corporations who do very well in feeding our country, but they're pushing us um, through advertising and lobbying, mm. huge expenditures, to eat too much and eat the wrong kinds of food yeah. with, laden with salt, sugar, and fats, and these things uh, are particularly harmful in big city neighborhoods that don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables and do have way too much access to uh, bad-for-them fa uh, uh -huh. fast foods. And finally, the drugs. There, it's we have a drug war yeah. uh, imposed um, largely by federal law, uh, though state law as well, that has not only filled our prisons, but... Uh, to an extent unseen anywhere else uh, in the uh, modern democracies of the world, yeah. uh, and it is targeted only at um, large central city neighborhoods mm. of color. And so, uh, though drugs are used by everybody, there's no difference in the drug rates, or virtually no difference in drug rates. Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Asians are a little lower, uh, whites... Um, uh, Native Americans a little higher, but the, 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 the big differences, blacks, yeah. Hispanics, whites, uh, they're basically the same, and they're the same in suburbs as in cities, but the drug war takes place entirely in cities, and the result is chaos, violence, and no, no, no reduction in drug use. So those are the four, austerity, schools, food, and um, the drug war. And I think all of them are in the headlines every day, and people are upset about it. I think it's why we have elected um, Democratic mayors in lots and lots of big cities, while Democrats are not doing very well elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so, well, it's it's uh, there's a lot to talk about there. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive is the show. Our guest is William Goldsmith, whose brand new book is Saving Our Cities: A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. You know, my, my sense is that probably most Americans kind of reflexively think that all oh, the cities are causing this problem themselves. I certainly heard during the uh, 2016 campaign 
that, uh, you know, it's the city's fault. Why should we, the rest of the country, go in and help the cities? And yet you're talking about uh, that, that it's coming from upstream, that the cities themselves are at effect rather than at cause. I, I, am I reading this right? You're reading it exactly right. Uh, my argument is that, well, let's take the first one, uh, federal budget cutters, austerity. Yes. You know, when you, you think, you remember the name Willie Sutton, of course, the great 20th century bank robber. When they asked, who kept getting caught and put in jail, and they asked, Willie, why do you rob banks? <laughs> His answer was, well, that's where the money is. So when the when the feds, uh, when, when the congressional uh, budget cutters acting on behalf of people who don't want to pay taxes, which is immensely wealthy. Well, nobody wants to pay them, but the people who have the ear of the Congress, uh, immensely wealthy individuals and uh, large corporations, uh, they look for places to cut spending so they can cut taxes. Right. Well, they can't cut military spending for reasons we all yeah. hear about all the time. Yeah. Uh, they find they're unable to cut um, big farm and ranch subsidies, um, no matter how much um, economists tell them it doesn't make sense to do it the way they do it, but that big lobbies protect them. Um, I, I'm glad they've been unable to cut um, Social Security as much as they'd like, though we may be heading in a bad way soon. Um, you know, Reagan tried it, and the Gray Panthers <laughs> bit back. Oh, true. Um, so they're looking around for a place to spend money. As I said, there was this tremendous buildup of urban expenditures, Health, housing, transportation, um, public facilities, um, all kinds of things. Um, through the 1960s and 1970s, there was a lot of money being spent on cities, a lot of tax money collected from cities, of course. Actually, more is collected than is spent. Uh-huh. Mm. It was a place to cut. And what they found was, like Willie Sutton, that's where the money was. So they could slash these expenditures, which they have done now for 40 years. Huge, huge cuts in federal spending on programs that one way or another aid central cities. And then they can turn around, because they these cuts are very damaging, and they can say, look, sure. these places are terrible. These places are a mess. Why should we spend money on something that's so counterproductive? And then they say, oh, well, we shouldn't. So they cut further, makes things worse. They can once again say, look how bad things are. We shouldn't spend money. So what I've what I, documented is sort of a spiral, a downward spiral of budget cuts, worse conditions, more budget cuts, still worse conditions, more budget cuts, until um, much, much less money is being spent on cities. And there, there are, you know, there are instances when you see the public officials at the top acknowledging uh, what they're doing. Um, I can go into a few of those, maybe. Sure. Well, my my favorite is long before Detroit, 38 years before Detroit. Mm. Abe Beam is mayor of New York, uh, yes. and they're broke. Uh huh. Uh huh. They can't meet their budget, so they look around to see where they can what they can do, and uh, the federal government uh, gives them uh, a negative sign. And what they get from is a headline in the New York Daily News. I'll never forget. Uh, famous among city planners. Ford um, to city, drop dead. You got it. Ford the city dropped dead. <laughs> I and, remember. And, you know, that's emblazoned. Now, Gerald Ford never actually said that. The right. federal government's uh, response actually was they finally did come through with some money for the city. Yes. Uh, the city eventually 
uh, gets a, an appointed administrator, just like Detroit today, uh-huh, uh, appointed by the yeah. governor. Uh, this is called the Big Mac, the Municipal Assistance Corporation, where a whole lot of dollar-a-year men, corporate executives, take time off from their business a little bit, and they form a board, and they govern the city. They make the rules. Now, William Simon was uh, Nixon and Ford's Secretary of the Treasury, right. and he pressed on this board, but he pressed in public with statements that the city should cut out its free tuition city university and charge more. They should raise prices for transit. Uh, they should increase mm-hmm. fees for city services, and they should reduce services altogether. So this was an explicit call wow. for the city to cut back on what it needed to do uh, for its citizens by a very far right-wing uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the federal government. Mm-hmm. So this was this was tremendous pressure that was just explicit. There, there are lots of other examples. Um, maybe Detroit is, is the best one to go into. Sure. Yeah, they in 2013, they uh, went into the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. And uh, it, 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 it's interesting how they're following on it. Go, but go ahead, talk about Detroit a bit, would you? Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, and of course, it's not just Detroit. This is one of the things I point out in the book, that these central cities now have sort of bloblets outside. You know, it used to be donuts with very poor central cities and relatively well-off suburbs. Now we have things all over. So we have Flint. Uh, it's not just Detroit. Right. Lots of places in uh, deep trouble. But it's 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 still focused on central cities. So my the, the, there are two things um, that I like to refer to uh, in Detroit. One is that um, though there have been big collapses in industries in the Detroit metropolis, nevertheless there are important boundary lines uh, erected by the uh, state governments, of course, that constrain things. And, and keep city damages from spreading. Uh, let me let me talk about two of these in Detroit. The first is um, there was a chief is a chief executive for Oakland County. Now that's a Detroit suburb has a population of uh, one and a quarter million people. Mm-hmm. This uh, chief executive has been reelected for twenty years, and he says he likes high fences. Now, I'm quoting him now uh, from 2014. He says this. Remember, this is the chief executive of a suburb outside Detroit, just on the border, that has uh, one and a quarter million people who's been reelected and reelected for 20 years. He says, what we're going to do is turn Detroit into an Indian reservation where we herd all the Indians into the city, build a fence around it, and then throw in the blankets and corn. Now, you know, this is long before the Trump election. <laughs> but it should have given us should have given us warning. And if how, you look at the yeah. other view of Detroit rather than the high fence locked in by what some call the white noose that surrounds almost all cities in the United States, um, we can turn to Robert Klein who was the Michigan state treasurer. Now, this is a man who had also been uh, the top tax authority in Michigan, and he became the treasurer, he blames, rather than Detroit itself, he blames three decades of Michigan, what he calls hostility, for driving the city into into bankruptcy. He says he lists a whole series of quite common options 
that are taken in cities all around the country from time to time, not so often, uh, that were not taken to Detroit. One of them is revenue sharing mm. between suburbs and cities to make up for income tax losses. The second one was regional districts for fire departments and police departments. Mm. It spreads the pain, uh, spreads the authority, uh, can save cities a lot of money. Uh, a third was applying for federal funding for mass transit, which the state decided not to do mm. on Detroit's behalf. Uh, fourth, which a lot of cities have, not all by any means, residency requirements for city workers. So all that city budget money being spent on wages and salaries can go to people who live in the city. Lots mm. of places have requirements like this. Mm -hmm. A third is tax base sharing or even regional government. Uh, the, the final one that mentioned by Klein is allowing more time, and I mean, this one is just at the very, very edge, allowing more time for emergency managers. Once they've taken over, more time for them to solve the problems. And rather than that, says Klein, and I agree, state politicians chose to blame Detroit's problems on things like corruption unions and overgenerous pension benefits. Uh, but those were not... The primary, and here I'm quoting <laughs> Robert Klein, those were not the primary causes of bankruptcy. Mm. Um, you know, we can find uh, waste, uh, fraud, and corruption uh, if we look hard enough anyway. just about anywhere. Oh, of course. Um, uh, you know, we can look at the big auto companies, uh, we can look at um, uh, our universities, <laughs> we, you know, doesn't matter where we look. Of course we find it in cities. Do we find it more in cities than elsewhere? Mm. Uh, Probably not. Interesting points. And I, I can't help but think that, you know, as part of the federal budget, there's this little thing called uh, the Defense Department, which spends <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And could there be waste and mismanagement there? I, nah, we can't even consider that possible. No, not likely, right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But uh, in the cities. And I, I just, uh, you know, this... The idea of us being all in it together seems to have escaped uh, Congress that, you know, we can. It's fascinating, as you describe uh, the city of Detroit, just, you know, build a fence around it. Let basically let them starve in there. Let them eat grass, as they used to say to some of the Native Americans uh, and just forget about it. But the idea that we, the rest of us who don't live in cities, that it might be important to us to have vibrant cities. I, I, you know, has that ever been there, the, the consciousness that, you know, even if we don't live in cities, even if we live in, in a rural area, that, that cities might actually be important to the rest of us? What about that consciousness? Well, you know, that's a, actually a great question, and it's a very difficult one. Uh, I'll give you an answer in the negative. Uh, it was maybe five years ago there was the one of the chief planners for the region around Bologna in Italy. Now, Bologna is famous for having had uh, left-wing governments uh, for, for decades, ever since World War II, um, Communist Party, Socialist Party governments, who are widely uh, recognized as governing the city extremely well and, and the area around it. Um, this uh, guy named Del Piano was lecturing uh, to a group of graduate students, a large group, and, and he realized at some point during his lecture that the students weren't following what he was saying. And he stopped and he said, look, look, you don't understand something. I'm, I'm European and urban is in my DNA. 
you know, to be a prime minister uh, in Europe, it's very likely that you begin by being a mayor somewhere of a big city. Mm-hmm. I don't think any American president served earlier as mayor. Oh, Lots of them as governor. Some of them as attorney generals, but not as mayor. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe one. Maybe Grover Cleveland. But I'm not sure any ever actually served as mayor of a big city. We we don't regard cities. Uh, Jefferson uh, versus Hamilton, which we now all know about because of the theater in New York. Yeah. Um, they fought about. Um, Hamilton was pro city, and Jefferson was pro countryside. Was afraid of the urban masses. Huh. Of the people who lived in cities, so we have this we have this sort of attitude towards cities. Yet, um, turns out our new president lives in the biggest city in America. True. In 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 many many ways, he lives right in the middle of the biggest city in the world, uh, and uh, that city needs to function well uh, for the rest of its metropolis to function well, and that metropolis needs to function well uh, for the country to function well. So. The question is when we're going to get there. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, one nice index is that lots of mayors of cities over the last decades have been and still are Democrats, while yes. Republicans have won all the state houses practically, yes. uh, all the state legislatures, uh, the White House, the Senate, the Congress. Um, a lot of cities are governed by relatively redistributive Democrats yes. who are conscious uh, of the ways, I think they're becoming more and more conscious of the ways their cities are being beaten up. It's... So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic after this election that we may actually turn more to thinking about cities uh, and the kinds of things that ought to be done to help cities. Wow, interesting. You know, there are, as I've been saying uh, since the election, uh, you know, any setback also has opportunities to it. Yeah, right. Interesting. And the fact that Mr. Trump comes from a rather large city, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be uh, a sign that, that something can help. And, you know, he and the Republicans always look to uh, the private sector. They, you know, government is the enemy. Uh, but it's, it's clearly... It seems that the private sector has made things worse for the city, you know, given that, you know, it's all just profit, 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 and take the jobs elsewhere, you know, the the race to the bottom, you know, the internationalization, the globalization of jobs. What about the private sector? And and you've talked about how when, when cities go into receivership, you have the private sector making the decisions for them, and they impose austerity higher taxes on people that can't pay higher taxes. Uh, what it, is there, do you think, a, a constructive role that the private sector can make in, with regard to revitalizing our cities? Or is it really something as, as simple as, you know, look, we have a government. It's supposed to be there for the, the common good. What is the role, if any, of, of, of the private sector in helping to improve our cities? That's uh, a, uh, boy, that is a good question. One that I hadn't thought about for a while. Look, uh, we operate um, a government that constrains activities in a capitalist society. I mean, we so there's no doubt that the answer to your question has to be yes. 
uh, if we're going to solve these problems, the private sector has to play a large role. The question is, under what conditions does it play that role? Um, how much is it obliged and when to pay taxes? Yeah. And what are those taxes used for? Uh, I don't think... Um, well, let, 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 me, let me turn to um, the role, the, the, the activity in which an awful lot of discussion prior to the election, not, not during the election period, had turned on private versus public, and that's schools. Yes. Um, you know, one of the, I devote two long chapters to trying to figure out what's going on in city schools. Uh, the one thing we know, we know this for sure from numerous, numerous studies, is that big city schools don't provide adequate education for the kids who go to them. Right. And those kids are disproportionately uh, minority kids yeah. or immigrants. They're black, Hispanic, colors, recent yeah. immigrants. Yes. Um, suburban schools, and, and, and suburban schools rank um, very well. They, they, they do provide good education. We have uh, data on uh, uh, graduation on time rates. City schools often way below half. Suburban schools up above 90%. So uh, there's just a, a drastic difference here. Uh, the proportion of kids who go on to college, very low in city schools. And when they get to college, they have a tougher time because they haven't learned enough. Um, very high uh, in suburbs. Uh, so we get this huge difference, and then we begin to ask, well, why, what's going on? And uh, uh, my argument is, is, is a little weird, but it's, it's not mine argument. Originally alone, uh, Harvard law professor Gerald Frug has pushed this uh, for a long time, and two economists named Sam Bowles and Herb Guinness decades ago published a book called Schooling in Capitalist America that makes this argument. The, 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 um, the schools in, in the suburbs, which do work well, are essentially, uh, they operate as though they're private schools. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. How? Yeah, well, so Please explain. the reason they act as though they're private schools is you've got to pay tuition to go to the public schools in suburbs. The tuition, of course, is your mortgage and your monthly payments. Uh, your kid can't go to the suburban school unless you live in the suburbs, and you can't live in the suburbs unless you have enough money and maybe racial permission, though that's clearly less important today than it used to be. Hmm. Um, Good point. You, you can't live in the suburbs unless you can afford to buy a house or possibly rent a place in the suburbs where there are good schools. Now, once you do that, you pay a pretty hefty real estate tax. Oh, yeah. And that tax goes in it, it, to for practically all the support of the schools. Some money comes from the state, some money comes from the federal government, but the vast majority of the money that goes to support schools comes from local taxes. Yes. Suburbs can afford to pay those taxes. Cities, hmm. even at higher tax rates, right. can't because their property isn't worth as much. Right. They don't pay as much. Right. Uh, so um, what you get is very good schools in suburbs that rank high if you could measure them separately on all these international tests, and very poor city schools that rank very low in those tests. So on average, U.S. comes out ranking way, way down the list, number 10, number 15, number 20 
uh, and all kinds of test scores, um, way behind a whole series of European and um, Asian countries. Uh, so what we get is, is just this, this stark divide, just like the divide where the, uh, where the uh, suburban um, executive in Oakland County outside Detroit wants to throw in blankets and food and mm-hmm. keep the natives happy. Mm. We, we get the same kind of divide with uh, city school districts. Um, and and uh, we get terrible results in the cities and, and great results uh, in the suburbs. There are all kinds of little experiments that sort of illustrate this um, that we might talk about. Sure. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, we all know, I mean, it's commonly known that, that public schools and cities aren't, you know, generally known for being top-notch uh, learning environments, and there have been all kinds of uh, approaches taken, but, you know, traditionally we hear people say, oh, you can't fix it by throwing money at the problem. But is it? And I wonder if you could talk about some of the specifics you were just... Uh, yeah, I actually think you can. That's what I thought. <laughs> throwing money at the problem. Yeah, really? Um, I mean, budgets, let me just take one... Uh, really important element in equality of schooling, and that's class size. Uh-huh. Class size really matters. If you go down the list of top public officials in the federal government, from President Obama all the way through Arnie Duncan, Duncan who was Secretary of um, Education, education to, to a whole lot of other uh, top activists in education, you find they all went to schools, typically uh, fully private schools, not suburban schools, that had class sizes that are, uh, you know, at most in the teens, but it's not unusual at all to have a class size of 6 or 8 or 10 or 12. Um, the city of San Diego made a special effort in the last decade using state monies and federal stimulus funds to provide aid to its 30 poorest schools. The, the schools, uh-huh. 30 schools with the poorest kids, the schools with the lowest scores. They wanted to drive down class size, and they what the law said was they had to drive it down to 17 children on average for kindergarten through second grade. Okay, now, what did this do? Well, it was anticipated, and it turned out uh, that these smaller classes yielded improved test scores. Well, what happened then? The district used up its federal stimulus money and had budgetary restrictions. Uh, so uh, in 2012, average classroom numbers bounced back to 30 students or more from most schools. But some schools didn't have this problem. There were some special schools, of course, some magnets, but also schools, this is all in the same school district, schools in a few well-off neighborhoods, uh, neighborhood areas had parents and support associations that provided all kinds of supplementary funding, funding, so that class sizes could remain small. Um, uh, listen to this. Th- th- this is outside the San Diego school district. Coronado, which is right next door, sure. has a little over three thousand students. They raised donations from parents and others to the tune of one thousand five hundred dollars per student in twenty ten compared to $20 per student in much less work mm. in San Diego. Wow. So you get, you get um, larger budgets in suburban districts, larger per capita, larger per student budgets, and you get uh, large contributions privately 
from parents and sometimes from foundations uh, to hire the band teacher, to hire the orchestra teacher, hire the, the, the football coach, Specific uh, fund the kids for a trip to Europe. I mean, there are all kinds of things like that. Um, and drive down class size. And it gets done in areas that have enough money, and it doesn't get done in areas that don't. Uh, there's just no doubt about it. Uh, you know, well, I don't know if I should go on with this, but... Yeah, sure. If, if For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the plight of the big cities. Uh, uh, guest today, William Goldsmith. His new book is called Saving Our Cities, a progressive plan to transform urban America. Go on where we left off, please. Okay, well, uh, look, the, the, the right wing often says, well, you know, these, 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 these parents and their kids, they really don't want good schools. They don't want to bother. Well, that, that movie Waiting for Superman, which is um, sort of a charter school hype oh, right. with Governor Christie in New Jersey and all the rest, um, has this scene in it that just almost brings tears to my eyes. It's a group of parents, poor parents, parents of color, um, and uncles and aunts and their kids who are attending um, the, the lottery when they're going to decide which kids get to go to the right. this uh, very special private magnet school that has all kinds of support from Wall Street, so in fact has smaller class sizes and all kinds of other supports. Yeah. All these people want their kids to get into school, but of course almost all of them don't win the lottery. Right. So what you see there is this, this struggle of people Gosh. to try to get their kids into good schools. They all want to get their kids in good oh, schools. They'd yeah, all like to move to the suburbs where the schools are better. But they can't. And it just, it, it's, it's very, very sad. Um, then we find out that there, there actually are experiments um, that show what happens when we spend more or provide good schooling. Uh, when the kids get to schools that are good, they in fact learn more. Um, there are two kinds of schools that do that. One is special schools within the public school systems in big cities. These are the magnet schools. Mm -hmm. We all know about those, and they're famous. Uh, I suppose Boston Latin, Stuyvesant uh, in New York, uh, Lowell in San Francisco. Uh, are, you know, you can only get in by exam. Uh, the, the School of Science in the Bronx, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot. Every city, no, not every city, many, many cities have these schools. And kids struggle to get in, and when they get in, no matter how poor the kids are, they learn. They learn a lot. They mm. learn more. Mm -hmm. That's one kind. The other is programs that help cities, uh, help city kids go to suburban schools. Uh, mm. uh, uh, the largest one that I know about is in, in, in the Boston area, right. but there are lots of them uh, around the country. Uh, these uh, these uh, uh, programs are, of course, plagued because uh, the kids um, sort of stand out. You know, they get... Yeah. African-American kids get bused to a predominantly white school in the suburbs. Right. Um, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's probably even harder after this election. Um, and then they come home, and their neighboring kids who don't get to go to that good school in the suburbs sort of give them a hard time. So this, this, is, a, this is a tough thing. Nevertheless, those kids learn more. So it, They learn a lot more. And the test scores are better. Uh, their success record at college and getting jobs is better. So, uh, but the problem is funding and facility for such programs, either the uh, 
magnet schools in the city or the um, trips to the suburbs for city kids remain almost by necessity marginal, experimental, and insufficient for the majority of city kids who would benefit. Yeah. If we if we spend enough money to have every kid in the city go to a magnet school, well, then we'd solve the problem. Like that. Uh, so yeah. when people say it's not a question of money, um, they're, they're, they're wrong. wrong. They're wrong. It is a question of money. And, of course, cities are burdened with extra expenses for kids who come to school hungry, uh, kids whose parents don't have English as a language, so they can't help them adequately with homework, no matter how much they want to. Uh, parents who maybe aren't so good at things that are taught at schools, and so their kids don't get helped as much. And they don't hire private tutors and blah, 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 all this other stuff that, that the upper middle class all knows about. So, so but Yeah, I say money's a big deal. Money is a big deal. And I'm remembering, uh, actually, in the late 70s and early 80s, I, I actually worked in an investment firm that sold real estate tax shelters, Section 8s and 221D4s, which built low-income housing in the inner cities. The investors made out rather well because they got tax benefits, tax deductions. Uh, but I actually came away with a very negative view of these projects because uh, the, the, it, it was all done from the top down. The people who lived there had no chance to participate in the decision-making so even though there was a lot of uh, investment in these things from the federal government, the housing projects uh, didn't, uh, they, did, they didn't do really well. What about, I mean, money absolutely is needed, in, in my opinion. And these troubled housing projects, there must be better ways to do it in which, you know, it's not done to them, but, but people in, in the cities can actually participate in the decision-making. And I can't help but think, just have a gut sense, that that, that kind of idea must apply you know, to schools, transportation. Ask the people what they need. What, what are your feelings about this? Oh, I agree with you completely. Um, I mean, I might, I might differ a little bit about the, the, the history of the housing programs because well, you know if we go that. from the REITs and, and, and the Section 8 and so forth, if we go back, go even even deeper into it and talk about public housing, uh, which is simply state-sponsored housing, uh-huh. it has a very, very bad rap. Um, you know, we have the Taylor Homes in Chicago, we have uh, Pruitt Ego, which got blown up, and, you know, lots of, lots of supposedly very, very bad history, and much of it is bad. At the, on the other hand, there are all kinds of public housing projects in cities across the country that provided very, very good housing for a lot of people for a very long time. It mm. wasn't always entirely racialized, though largely it was. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's not so different. If, if, we, if we switch focus and look at, at which I don't do it all in this book, but uh, I have at other times, and look at European um, housing programs. What mm, we find mm. is that European countries, including um, Britain, right up until Margaret Thatcher, which had half of its housing stock, was public. <laughs> okay. Really? I mean, wow. we're talking about 1%, maybe, in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was large. It was council, called council housing. It wasn't all great. Uh, people might rather be rich and live in an estate, yeah, but right. you know these were these were these were perfectly adequate housing projects where half the population lived. Um, in 
other European countries, the numbers are even higher. One of the one of the ones that I observed briefly once was in the Netherlands, hmm. where there was tremendous, as in all of Europe, a, a very large expenditure uh, because of large taxes, which transferred money into subsidizing people's housing. But it ran not through state organized housing, but it did the kinds of things that you were suggesting might be very helpful. Ran them through labor unions, oh. through churches. Uh, through community groups, and, and and so it turns out you could be living on a block uh, of apartments, say. I mean, European cities tend to be more dense, so they're more apartments, not individual houses. Um, and you actually don't know how your neighbor's house or living unit is being funded. Maybe it's through her labor union. Uh, maybe it's through the hospital she works for. Uh, maybe it's mm. through... Uh, some giant corporation, all of it subsidized with public funds that come from, as I said, higher taxes. Um, and it, it, so that the notion that there would be lots and lots and lots of people homeless, lots and lots and lots of people in inadequate mm-hmm. uh, housing, uh, is just sort of absent. But I've sometimes lectured uh, at conferences in Western Europe, and people stop me and they say, well, 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 wait, wait, we don't understand. Is that really true? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, that's really true. That's the way we do things in the United States. They say, well, we don't do things that way. Why would you do things that way? <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, uh, look, the, the silver lining, I say, is the new language we have. Such, oh, interesting. Such uh, as? You know, we now talk about the 1% and the 99%. We yes. didn't talk about that 10 years ago. For sure, it took it took the the, the Wall Street protests. Yes, uh, to to and now everybody that gets that. Everybody gets that. That's true. Yeah, I, and and so the the cities. I'm I'm curious about the cities in in Europe. My sense is they're not like you know gated off and you know just throwing corn and blankets to that. They're they they function better. And I guess the federal or the governments there uh, have different attitudes towards it. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think they have different attitudes and they have different sets of rules. One of the rules we have, which is very strange, is this is this sort of localism where um, states have set up their jurisdictions so that there are boundary lines that are very sharp between cities and their suburbs. In general, European city authority goes very, very broadly. It spreads out. Sometimes... Uh, National programs even simply spread the funding as the population expands and 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 goes beyond uh, the, the 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 area of the original city. Mm-hmm. Um, one example would be education funding in France. It's simply national. That's all. It's not local. It doesn't depend on your property tax. And the schools tend to be much more equal across districts in Paris, across all of France. Wow. You tend. I mean. Something Americans don't like is that, you know, there's a single uh, curriculum for everybody. The French really like that. They, they think they've, they've seen the light and can do it right. Um, we, we like this sort of local experimentalism in the 50 states and so forth. So I'm, I'm not disputing that. But the funding um, could come um, from the national government. And if it did, then we wouldn't have these incredible discrepancies. Hmm. So I, I think... We have funny. Listen, there's a geographer named um, uh, uh, Jamie Peck. He says uh, austerity is something that Washington does to the states, the states do to the cities, 
in the cities due to low-income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and Peter Marcuse, the urban planning theorist, says that the language of the Occupy movement had it just right. Austerity is something the 1% do to the 99%. Yes. I, I, think, I think maybe <laughs> because of this election, with people feeling the burn and others voting for Trump, uh, maybe one good thing it's done, maybe other good things, I don't know, mm. is to make people conscious of that incredible inequality and try to figure out uh, where it comes from. Yeah, interesting. Um, that, that, you know, a lot of people focus on the poverty in the big cities. You focus less on the poverty and more on what we're just talking about here, economic inequality. Talk more about that, if you would, please, and how that, you know, the sudden consciousness, and it's it's very thorough now of the 1% versus the 99%. Maybe that'll start to make a difference, you think? Uh, maybe, maybe. I'm hoping so. So let me, let me give a sort of an odd sideways answer to your question, because uh, this has to do with, with this. You know, uh, uh, I have this single long chapter about food and nutrition in cities. Yeah, that's big. And um, I, I'm, I was curious what kind of organized resistance there's been against the food industry, which spends all this money on lobbying so that USDA, the Department of Agriculture, does the right things and spends so much advertising so we eat all the wrong things. Right. Uh, there's abundant evidence about that. Oh, yeah. But um, let me let me just... Um, tell you this. Uh, it turns out that in in Cleveland in 2011, the city decided that it wanted to ban trans fats. Now, by now, other cities have done this, too, and it's no big deal, and people know we shouldn't be eating trans fat. But this was, was fairly, uh, fairly early on uh, that they wanted to do this. Um, what happened is really illustrative of, of what's going on uh, in terms of the 1% and the 99%, I think. In April uh, 2011, uh, as part of its healthy Cleveland program, the city banned those trans fats uh, in restaurants. Well, the Ohio Senate reacted. <laughs> the Ohio Senate amended the state budget to do this, to actually prohibit municipal regulation of ingredients used by fast food restaurants. Oh, wow. Now, it turns out that kind of state legislative action is well within normal bounds. Hmm. But what happened in Cleveland was unusual. Lawyers for the city discovered that the amendment, this amendment to the state budget, prohibiting cities from regulating restaurants, had been written by the lobbyist for the Ohio Restaurant Association, who, not wisely, sent it by email to the state's Department of Agriculture. And what the lobbyist wrote is this. He said, this sort of regulation, here I quote him, is exactly what we want to preempt with the attached amendment. Amendment. So he said, hey, get rid of this Cleveland thing. Now, of course, that offending email uh, ended up being public, and it was exactly what food advocates needed. So Cleveland foodies really had their day as another state court said, oh, oh, we should reverse that decision, and they found the preemption unconstitutional. Well, obviously, this was what you call a sunshine event, uh, where something done quietly by the 1% against 99% um, 
got revealed and people uh, turned it around. Um, I think there's a lot of resistance of this sort. Um, there's been a tremendous effort at school foods, an introduction of gardens, kids as cooks, fresh foods, farm to market. Yeah. Uh, lots of cities and across the country now have food councils that worry about this stuff. And uh, they're trying in city after city after city across the country to institute uh, better food practices, not just in schools, uh, but in grocery stores. Uh, there are rules, for example, that you have to devote a certain quantity of shelf space uh, to fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, either if you want to get past the zoning code or if you want to get some kind of subsidy for the city. There are schools that sell, uh, sorry, provide free food in packages in, in public libraries. Mm. Baltimore does that. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on. And I think this is sort of an index of the way in which people are responding uh, to um, to the, the, well, and I think that's sort of what the anti-establishment election was just about. People are saying, wait a minute, the establishment is just going ahead with things as usual, and it's not working for us, and we've got to do something about it. So, I, you know, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I've been a city planner all my life, believing we could actually make things better. So I'm, I'm still believing it. Well, I think we can, too. I, I mean, to be uh, a fairly progressive Democrat in the state of New Hampshire, one has to be an optimist or a masochist or maybe some combination of both. <laughs> but there's that sense of community that, you know, I think a lot of smaller towns have some sense of, of communities. You know, in, in, in the really big cities, you know, I can imagine there's some sense of isolation. But I I wonder about how important to to improving our cities a sense of community can be. And that you know, a community needs things like transportation, public spaces, I would think. Uh, I, you know, are, are we getting a sense of that? Is there, uh, you know, how, how important is that sense of community that, you know, caring about one another? Our founders talked about something called the common good. I mean, it sounds so silly. <laughs> but I, I wonder about how important something like that is, you know, in, in terms of framing the solutions to people feeling like, yeah, there is something called the common good and, and that it is something important that, uh, you know, our elected leaders need to, dare I say, invest in? Well, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question, and I'm not sure I can give a, a, a reasonable answer. But let me try one that sort of, once again, comes at it sort of sideways um, from New England. Um, there's a little city in Rhode Island called Woonsocket. It yes. uh, has a population of something like um, 40,000. Um, a lot of the people are, are originally from uh, French Canada. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 in 2012, so that's just four years ago, the city had a $10 million deficit. And its school department, uh, was, which had been surprised by a shortfall the year before, in 2011, eliminated nearly... 20 teachers and support staff. Wow. So this is a small small city, and that's a big hit. What the su- superintendent of schools told the community was that the school department is like an accident patient in an emergency room. Okay, so things were really bad. Now, <clears throat> there's no doubt that Woonsocket's problems stemmed from the decision of the previous governor of Rhode Island to balance the state budget by cutting aid to the cities. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so we know that. 
Now, under those circumstances, Woonsocket decided to solve its own problem. So you were asking about community solidarity, people figuring this out together. Woonsocket, believe it or not, Woonsocket voted to tax itself, to increase its own property tax by 13.8%. Now, that's really strong medicine, but it was to be self-administered. The state Senate voted to allow the city to do that. The Rhode Island House of Representatives, however, killed the bill. <laughs> it's unbelievable. There were two right-wing Woonsocket representatives who pushed for the city to go into receivership. Hmm. Turns out these guys were following the lead of a group called ALEC, which I'll talk about uh, in a second, uh, which abhors uh, taxes yes. and prefers to shrink public budgets. Uh, now, as it turns out, there's a state budget commission that was charged with overseeing and overruling both the city government and the school district. This didn't happen only there, but it happened elsewhere. But let me tell you what one of those two conservative representatives who killed the relief bill for Woonsocket, who himself is a member of Alex National Board, uh, said about these austerity moves, this big budget cutting, this unwillingness to let people vote for their own taxes. He said, you never move faster than when you have a piano hanging over your head. The receiver is that piano. You know, the guy running yeah. Woonsocket, appointed by the state government. Now, this is the view of Alec. What we want to do, you know, what, what, what did that guy say? Let's pull the plug and drain the government. Oh, yes, the drain the drain. swamp, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's just a, it, it's an insane approach to governance. These people in Woonsocket said, wait a minute, we want teachers, we want public services, we're going to vote. An increased, we don't have enough money, we know that, nobody likes to pay taxes, but we're going to increase our taxes by almost 14%. And then the state said, no, you can't do that. And they said that on the advice and the pushing of these two conservative representatives. One of them is on the ALEC National Board. Right, That's yeah. the American Legislative, Legislative Exchange Council. Right. We don't like it. It's that. a big, big corporate funded group that yes. uh, works with state legislators to get them to enact right-wing yeah. bills yeah, about like food, that. about education, uh, about schools, right, um, and about just budgets themselves. Well, I just want to ask, we've got just about not even a minute left. Are we close to a tipping point? Could there be voting blocks to overcome the money power that is uh, determined, you know, pushing this and doing all that bad stuff? Yes. <laughs> In one second. I think we are. And I think the place we're going to see this come out is in cities, big cities. As I said, many of them are governed by Democrats already. Uh, in Seattle, we even have an avowed socialist on the city council who's been very active and quite successful. I think people are, and I think that the national election yeah. said that people are fed up with things the way they are. Yes, they are. And, and they're not scared of that S word anymore. Not as much as they were. That's for sure. we got to do something different, and I think people maybe are ready for a change. They, they certainly voted against more of the same. <laughs> no question about that. No question about that. Thank well, you. We have to turn them in another direction. Yes, we do. The book is called Saving Our Cities, A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. The author, our guest today, William Goldsmith. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hopefully starting to make some, uh, some real change and uh, get things uh, together for our common good. Thank, thank you. It was an enormous pleasure talking to you. Thank you. We built this city. We built this city.